Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's our text this morning. John chapter 3, 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would give us your Spirit that your spirit would illumine this passage to us and we would be those who who gain from it. Father, that we would not just look into this and forget, but Father, that we would remember these words, that we would live by these words, that we would honor you by believing these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So sorry, mothers, that I didn't mention Mother's Day last week. Happy Mother's Day, a week late. Okay, I was distracted with the preaching of the gospel and things like that. But no, I do honor the, the women, not just the mothers, but the women of this congregation who um, are spiritual mothers in so many ways and also physical mothers. So praise the Lord. Now, back to John 3. It's all you get. I even meant to pray for you last week, but it didn't. Oh, well. It's always next year. All right, so John chapter 3. Nicodemus enters the scene. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's, uh, by, by mentioning that he's a ruler of the Jews, means that he's a member of that ecclesiastical assembly, the Sanhedrin. And not only is he uh, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's a scribe. So Nicodemus is a, a, a muckety-muck. He is a intellectual. He's a lawyer. He's He's a ruler, he's well-connected, he is respected, he is um, 
He's an accomplished Pharisee. And so undoubtedly, Nicodemus had heard about what had been happening in Jerusalem during that time. I'm this, the whole Sanhedrin would have been having emergency meetings about the cleansing of the temple that Jesus had uh, done when he pushed out the animals and the money changers, when he declared that people were making his father's house a place of business. Saying that the temple would be destroyed in three days and that in three days he would raise it up. Perhaps even Nicodemus had observed all those events. You know, once they got going, he made his way to the to the temple courts and observed Jesus doing these things. The Pharisees would undoubtedly have been in crisis mode, uh, most likely not because Jesus was, was doing something to the temple, but because Jesus was messing up their business. He was taken away from their prophets. Luke 16.14 tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money after all. They loved money. They would not have taken kindly to Jesus disrupting their main flow of income during the Passover week. I mean, this was, this was Super Bowl Sunday. This was, you know, this was when they made their money. One of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, went to Jesus directly after all of that. It was a bold move. It was a risky move as well for him. He goes... During the night, our text says, presumably to keep his actions hidden from view. It may, it may just simply be that he figured Jesus would have some time to talk, and that's why he went at night. But I think there is, some, you know, that it's mentioned, there is something to the fact that it seems he's, he's going under the cover of darkness. He, didn't, he clearly wouldn't want the other Pharisees to know what he's doing, or any other observers who saw him to go report to the Pharisees that they saw him with this rabble-rouser Jesus. And so, um, Jesus undoubtedly is already becoming a toxic presence to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees will try to kill him the rest of Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees, what do we know about the Pharisees? The Pharisees hated idolatry. They hated secularism. These were the conservatives of Jerusalem, of Israel. These are the conservatives. They hated idolatry. They, they hated that the culture was being Hellenized, that the Greeks were coming in and changing things. And um, they appeared on the scene in Jerusalem about 100, 150 years before Jesus arrived. Their doctrine was sometimes good. Remember, Jesus says... Uh, do as they teach, just don't do as they do. Um, they believed in God's define, divine decree. They um, believed in man's moral responsibility. They believed in immortality. They believed in the resurrection of the body. They believed in the reality of spirits. Right? They, they believed in the reality of rewards and punishments in the future life. A lot of overlap, right, between what we believe and what the Pharisees believed. Men of renown, such as Gamaliel, right, the Apostle Paul, Josephus, the historian in the first century, were Pharisees. Um, their problem, which Jesus now confronts head on, was this. They externalized religion. 
Religion was all about what you did outside of yourself. It was all about actions. Right? Uh, Kistemacher in his commentary says, Outward conformity to the law was far too often considered by them to be the goal of one's existence. Outward conformity to the law. But even still, we believe in the outward conformity to the law, don't we? Yeah. We believe in the outward conformity of the law, and we just don't put the cart before the horse. We don't make that the way of salvation. Then he's, um, Kistenmacher summarizes their religion this way. He says, here's how Scripture describes the Pharisees. Or this is, this is how Scripture describes the Pharisees, not Kistenmacher. Matthew 23. And Jesus, by this point, is very clear about what he thinks about the religion of the Pharisees. Right? This is Jesus at, uh, at his, the, the height of his uh, righteous indignation. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things, but don't do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus says that here? And what did Nicodemus call him? Rabbi. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What does it say next? Hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside... They are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then we could go to Luke 18, another example of this, and it, um, another example of, of the, the bankruptcy of the Pharisees, Luke 18, 9, and he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the parable is being told to Pharisees, trusting in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, right? If you trust in your own self-righteousness, that's what you spend your life doing is viewing others with contempt because they're not exhibiting the same righteousness as you. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisees trusted in their works. Pharisees trusted in cleaning up the outside, right? Just cleansing the outside. Very specifically and related to our passage, they believed they could enter the kingdom of God by those works. They had the key to entrance. Entrance was earned. It was something you earned. And Jesus teaches us otherwise in this passage. We'll get to that later. Again, the absurdity of the, the Pharisees' rules demonstrates what they trust in. Here's, here's some rules. Some of them held that a woman should not look into a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out, which would be working. Some of you have broken the Sabbath even this morning. <clears throat> One was allowed to swallow vinegar on the Sabbath as a remedy for a sore throat, but not use it as a gargle. You can swallow it, you can't gargle it. That would be work. There was a rule that an egg laid on the Sabbath could be eaten, provided one intended to kill the hen. Right? I mean, rule after rule after rule. You could go, if you had a rope, you could stretch a rope from your house to a certain distance, and you could go the distance of that rope away from your front door. It becomes clear why they were called Pharisees, and that word means set apart or separated ones. They had distinguished themselves by these works, these rules. These rules would have been well known by Nicodemus because he was a scribe. And the scribes were the ones who dug into the works of the rabbis and, and um, uh, put down oral tradition. Right? They would have uh, been kept by Nicodemus well if he wasn't a hypocrite like the other Pharisees. He would have attempted to keep these. 
He would have spent years and years working through both the scriptures and the oral traditions, which they waited along, waited like the scriptures. And yet, from the start of this exchange, it appears that Nicodemus was not there to confront Jesus or to trap him in his words. Rather, he shows respect to Jesus, first calling him rabbi, which they liked to use and receive that term, a term which meant teacher. It was reserved for experts in the scriptures, doctors of law. There's nothing to indicate that in the passage that Nicodemus, we don't have his tone of voice, but there's nothing to indicate in the passage that Nicodemus is flattering Jesus or using irony in what he says. Beyond calling him rabbi, Nicodemus essentially calls Jesus a prophet. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus seems quite convinced that there is something more than ordinary about Jesus, that he is a teacher and a prophet who works miracles. And Nicodemus uh, gets it that only God is the author of miracles. And so Jesus must be from God. Other Pharisees would claim that Jesus did his works by Beelzebul. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. But Nicodemus believes, or at this point at least says, differently. Now remember, in, in the passage preceding this, we learned uh, this about Jesus. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he, knew him, he, he himself knew what was in man. He knew the heart of man. Jesus knew the twistedness of man's heart. Jesus knew um, that we are always filled with pride. And so trying to impress God with our tithing of mint uh, is, is incredible pride. Jesus knew the Pharisees and their external religion. So as Nicodemus stands before him, he is thinking about how this man and men like him think their entrance into God's kingdom is by what they do. And even as Nicodemus comes to him and opens with his statement about Jesus being a teacher and a prophet, Jesus is already three chess moves ahead of Nicodemus. At least three. So he goes straight to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the question of, well, how does one enter the kingdom? Of God. In other words, he goes straight to the question of how is one saved? Is it by tithing mint? Is it by tithing dill? Is it by external things? Is it by works? Is it by man's initiative? The Apostle John has already answered this question in the prologue, right? This is a theme of John's gospel from beginning to end. He's already answered this question. In uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, But as many as received Jesus, to them Jesus gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, birthed, begotten, right? Born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, only after Nicodemus has said a few things about Jesus, he hasn't asked questions, right? No questions, Jesus launch, launches into answers. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as if he's reading Nicodemus' heart. Now, this saying of Jesus, introduced by those solemn words, truly, truly, I say to you, um, is made without immediate explanation. Nicodemus locks onto Jesus saying that one must be born again, right? That's what he focuses in, uh, that, that Jesus says born again, given his response. This Pharisee who had been trusting in his own works, he had been trusting in his self-righteousness, trusting, um, trusting in what he had done is being told words that should strip down and remove his entire worldview, his entire conception of religion, his entire understanding of what it means to please God. These words just strip all of it away. The answer to the question of how one enters, or as Jesus puts it, even sees the kingdom of God is this. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. And the, the phrase born again is just so commonplace. We just, it's like a catnip for Christians. Right? We just hear it and it's like, yeah, born again. But we don't even really think about what it means. I mean, and, and we hear it and, and we scratch our heads. We, we still think that maybe it's my ethnicity that, that will get me into the kingdom of God. Maybe it is my ethnicity. It's the righteousness of my ancestors that will get me, you know, especially if you're Scottish, you're in the kingdom of God. Right, those covenanters have saved generations of progeny. Um, and, or, or we think, you know, my strict adherence to man-made rules about the Sabbath, you mean that's not enough to get me into the, the kingdom of heaven? I, I, I didn't gargle, I have never gargled vinegar on the Sabbath. You know? Not that I remember. Some, some wine that may have been approaching vinegar. Um, someone blessing me with, with accolades or degrees or awards, that's not enough to get me considered by God as a member of his kingdom. And Jesus' answers to, to all of those kind of situations is a quick No! No, it will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. None of those things will get you into the kingdom of heaven. The path of, to Christ's kingdom, to the kingdom of God, to vital union with Christ in his bride, the church is an absolutely laser-narrow path. It's one point of a laser-narrow path. Right? One must be born again, period. You have to be born again. So like Nicodemus, you may be thinking, well, how can I be born again? Born again? And Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, he would take it literally. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Can he? <laughs> I mean, he's actually, he, he actually says that to Jesus. That's the sort of thing that you think in your head and you're like, no, that's a really stupid thing to say. You might not want to say it to Jesus, the Son of God. 
I mean, he actually says that. Must I crawl back into my mother's womb? And she go through labor pains again, and I come out of the womb. Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? What? What? Now let's stop and think about this. One, one of the implications of this teaching of God's word is that our first birth, our first birth is not enough for our entrance into Christ's kingdom. So many people today think that just because they are alive and they've been born and they're human, right, and have a pulse and are living, that they are already in Christ's kingdom. But that is to ignore that fact that we are, what? Born in sin. You're born with God hating you. He hates you. He is opposed to you. And you hate him. It's a mutual anger. Adam's sin has corrupted us, and so we are born at odds with God. Alienated from him, hostile in mind toward him. We are, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, by nature children of wrath. By nature children of wrath. By virtue of being born of a woman, we, we enter this world in the wrath of God. We are born in sin. Just to say that today, in today's culture of preciousness, where everybody is a gift to the world, and a shooting star and a uniquely patterned butterfly, is to be offensive. No, what marks you more than anything else is that you, you were born in sin, and God is angry. Yes, the, the Christian faith says that what most marks each man in, and is inevitable because of their connection to the first man, Adam, is that they are born separated from God, estranged from God. They are born sinful and God hates sin. Look at verse 6. Jesus teaches what I have just explained. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And flesh and blood, if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood can't do what? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Which is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in John 3. And so it is nothing less than a second birth, a new birth, a regeneration that must take place to make us acceptable to God. Those who are born again then are those who are given by God's grace the ability to see and then to enter into Christ's kingdom. How does this happen? How does it happen? It happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in a man's heart. Right? The new birth is when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart, changes the heart's disposition from unbelieving to believing, from soft to from hard to soft, right? And from, from angry at God to thankful toward God. Let me draw in a little A.W. Pink here for, for some help explaining regeneration. He says this, At the fall, all desire Godward. All love for his maker. All real knowledge of God was lost. 
Sin possessed him. Sin as a principle of evil, as a power of operation, as a defiling influence, took complete charge at his, of his spirit and soul and body so that he became the servant or slave of sin. As such, now listen to this, as such, as that fallen man, man is no more capable of producing that which is good, spiritual, and acceptable to God than frost can burn or fire freeze. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. They have no power to do so for all their faculties. Every part of their being is completely under the dominion of sin. So completely is fallen man beneath the power of sin and spiritual death that the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. And then he goes on, he says this, Now what takes place at regeneration is the reversing of all of that that happened at the fall. The one born again is through Christ and by the Spirit's operation restored to union and communion with God. The one who before was spiritually dead is now spiritually alive. Just as spiritual death was brought about by the entrance into man's being of a principle of evil, so spiritual life is the introduction of a principle of holiness. God communicates a new principle as real and as potent as sin. Divine grace is now imparted. A holy disposition is wrought in the soul. A new temper of spirit is bestowed upon the inner man. This is our understanding of mankind. This is our understanding of anthropology, right? Man was born in sin, and until God works, he remains in sin. Until God works, he, he hates God, and everything he does is, is tainted with sin. You may not believe that. You, like today's college professors, may think that, that man is not sinful. He's just ignorant, right? And if we just educate people, we'll, we'll usher in an age of peace and tranquility, and ascending love, right? But, but if anything is easy to believe about the Christian worldview and the teaching of Scripture, it should be this. Man is sinful. Do I have to prove that? No. No, I mean, he has a nature that is sinful. His corruption is baked in. Spend three minutes watching the evening news, or reading about the lectures at the local university, or the latest legislation put forward by the political parties of the United States of America, and you'll see the sinfulness of man on display. See how people treat one another, physically assaulting one another for a gallon of gas or a roll of toilet paper. Think of the violence of mankind. Think of the, the wars that have broken out over petty jealousies. Think of genocide. Think of the thoughts that go through your own head. Right? Think of the selfishness of infants. Think of how easy it is for you to get angry when your pride is poked. I mean... The easiest part of the Christian faith to believe, to understand, to buy into is that man is sinful. 
And yet when Jesus says that we must be born again, that we must be born again by the water and the Spirit, that there really is a problem that only God in His power can overcome, we all, because we are proud, begin to think that maybe sin isn't the problem. Maybe all I need to do is tithe my mint, dill and cumin. Maybe all I need to do is pluck gray hairs from my head on the Sabbath or not pluck them. Um, God thinks I'm great. God is pleased with me. God thinks I am doing a good job. And so it, it's only an easy and safe stroll to cross over the river and rest in the shade of the trees on the other side. And Jesus says, no. No. Jesus teaches us that it is only the very power of the Holy Spirit that will make us be able to even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter. Short of the Spirit's work, a man will not see and will not care whether he enters the kingdom of God. This is undoubtedly true. Unless the Spirit works, a man can spend every day, every Sunday, under the preaching of God's word, every day reading his word, every day praying to him, right? Every day loving his neighbor, every day reading commentaries and expanding his knowledge of God and yet not know God. Think of how many people attend church not because they are regenerate and desire to worship their Savior, but they attend church because there's some worldly benefit to it makes their family happy that they're there. It gives them some kind of pleasure. It gives them cover for the sins that they really care about and they really serve and they really love. God's Spirit must work in the heart of man or no matter what he does, what he says, what he thinks, he will be no closer to being able to see Christ's kingdom. Now, why does Jesus say, unless one is born again by the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God? We get the Spirit part, but what does Jesus mean by the water? A lot say that this means baptism. And they go on to make the, the error that baptism regenerates, right? So they apply the water, you're regenerate, you get the new birth, you know, get wet, get saved. Uh, in other words, some people think that being baptized is all that is needed in order to enter the kingdom of God. Roman Catholics hold to this, Lutherans hold to this, um, all of them, and many Protestant denominations hold to this teaching. Now, Calvin says this on this, and he still says it's baptism. He says, Chrysostom, with whom the greater part of expounders agree, so he's blaming it on Chrysostom. He's going back to Chrysostom. Um, makes the word water refer to baptism. The meaning would then be that by baptism we enter into the kingdom of God because in baptism we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, re baptismal regeneration. Hence arose the belief of the absolute necessity of baptism in order to the hope of eternal life. Right? Those, th there became a view that if you weren't baptized, you could not be saved. Right? Because they were tying regeneration to water baptism. Um, but though we were to admit that Christ here speaks of baptism, 
Yet we ought not to press his words so closely as to imagine that he confines salvation to the outward sign, the water. But on the contrary, he connects the water with the Spirit because under that visible symbol, he attests and seals that newness of life which God alone produces in us by his Spirit. So in other words, Calvin teaches here that Jesus is speaking of the waters of baptism, but he does not merely mention the outward sign of water as the thing that saves, but expressly holds the outward sign together with the Spirit who must work. Kistemacher puts it this way, the evident meaning is this, being baptized with water is insufficient. The sign is valuable indeed. It is of great importance both as a pictorial representation and as a seal, but the sign should be accompanied by the thing signified, the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. So let me make an analogy. If, we, if you were to get the COVID-19 vaccine, they will give you a vaccination card right, so that you know when to get your second dose and can prove you've been vaccinated if anyone is so obnoxious to ask you if you have been. The card signifies that you've been vaccinated. But that card is not the vaccine, right? The cocktail injected into your arm is what has been promised to protect you, not the card upon which those things are recorded. That card just points toward the actual thing, right? Um, the water of baptism is a pointer toward an authenticating seal of, rep- of regeneration, like that card is a pointer toward the vaccine. But regeneration remains the real substance, the real thing. The Spirit alone produces regeneration. No amount of water will regenerate a person. We are absolutely, absolutely dependent upon the Spirit's work for regeneration in our hearts in the hearts of our family members, in the hearts of our friends. Now, you can see why sacramentalism is a temptation, right? It takes salvation out of the hands of the Lord and puts, the, it, puts it smack dab in your own hands. Pour the water on me. I got to get saved. Give me the Lord's table. I got to be saved. Right? It takes salvation out of the hands of the Holy Spirit and puts it in the hands of a pastor or a priest. It takes salvation out of the hands of Jesus Christ and puts it into a created substance like water. And then puts it into, you know, if you take water and, and say the right incantation or just speak the triune name and then sprinkle some water, well, we've obligated a less-than-sovereign God to obey us. That's sacramentalism. That's sacramentalism. That is obligating God to obey your actions. Now, that could be one meaning of this. It could be talking about baptism, but, it, but maybe not. John Murray takes the, the mention of water in a different direction. He says it's important to remember that he's talking to Nicodemus, which... Context, yeah. He's talking to Nicodemus, he's talking to a Pharisee, and when the, the, a Pharisee heard water, he would be thinking of the waters of purification in the Old Testament. Okay, not the waters of baptism. His conclusion is then this, the characteristic sin of the Pharisees was self-complacency and self-righteousness. What they needed was to be convinced of their own pollution and their need of radical transformation. The water of purification, as it 
uh, were, uh, was the womb out of which must emerge that new life which gives entrance into and fits for membership in the kingdom of God. Regeneration must negate the past as well as reconstitute for the future. And so what, what, what he's saying is the water of purification in the Old Testament was meant to clean, expunge sin. But then there's a principle of newness of life that must come in, and that's the work of the Spirit. So in talking to Nicodemus, Jesus is pulling in these two, two sides. And so you have to be cleansed, give up your self-righteousness, and know that you're defiled and you need to be cleaned up. Water will do that or symbolizes that, and then the Spirit. And it's all there in Ezekiel 26. Right? Ezekiel 26, verses 25 to 26 says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's, that's the water and the Spirit together. But regardless of what interpretation we take, and I think I like Murray's interpretation because it's simpler, uh, the point is that sin is a problem and the Spirit must purify and renew. There are no two ways about it. Jesus teaches that the Spirit must regenerate, must birth anew. Those who enjoy an eternal Sabbath in his joyful presence, must be born again. God has to work. He has to do all the work, and he has to certainly do the initial work. God must work, and his work is his work. You can't provoke him to work. You can't obligate him to work. You can't trick him into working. Man does not control God's work in any sense, ever, anywhere, at any time. Did you have a choice in your first birth? Think of that. Nope. You don't have any choice in your second birth. That's precisely what Jesus says next. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you make the wind change directions? Ever tried to do that? It's a complicated system. It's hard to wrap your arms around it. Is the wind at your beck and call? Right? Can you call forth the winds? Can you, call, can you make them stop? Well, no, neither, neither can you do anything to provoke, to move, to obligate the Spirit. So many people today are offended by this truth of Scripture. In fact, every man at some level is offended by this doctrine because we are all prideful little uh, despots of our own lives, children of Adam. Right? But there is glory in this doctrine. Right? Isn't there? There's glory in this doctrine. Only the regenerate get this. Right? Only those who have been born by the Spirit understand this. The doctrine of regeneration does something to man's pride, doesn't it? We are always wanting credit. 
We are always lauding our own abilities. We are animated by our pride all the time. And this doctrine that the Spirit blows about where he wishes the doctrine of regeneration as the singular path of salvation, it destroys our pride. It destroys it. You did not choose him. He chose you. But not only that, this doctrine exalts the glory of God's grace. That he determines to call and regenerate some men who are no different than all the rest of men, dead in their sins, is grace. That's the grace of God. And you should thank him for it. If you've tasted of this grace, if you know this grace, if you are born again, you should be thanking him because there was nothing about you that made him choose you. John Murray writes, God's grace reaches down to the lowest depths of our need and meets all the exigencies of the moral and spiritual impossibility which inheres in our depravity and inability. And that grace is the grace of regeneration. God affects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources. A change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls things that be not as, those, as though they were, who spake and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. Unless by sovereign operative grace uh, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. Would never yield it. So my final point is this. You will know when you're regenerated. You will know when you are regenerated. How will you know? Well, first of all, you'll be converted. You will confess Christ. Your mouth will, will pour forth praises of him. You will believe that his death atoned for your sin. You will, you will love him. You will flee to the cross when you sin. You'll have remorse when you sin and you'll go to the cross. Right? You will pursue holiness out of a heart and conscience that's made alive to the fact that you have offended a loving father when you sin. You will be free from the power of sin. You will pray. You will fear God. You will be a different man, renovated on the inside as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You will exercise faith and repentance. Murray again puts it this way. You will no longer live in neutral abstraction. I love that. You'll no longer live just... You, you will ride on the heights of the earth. Right? Knowing that you have, been, you have been chosen by God and you have been given his spirit that lives in you. you. You, in fact, will act like a citizen of a new kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
right? If, and, and so let me conclude here. If you are the same as you ever were, if you are the same as you ever were, or don't see the fruit that comes from the Spirit dwelling within you, the conclusion is clear. The power of God has not worked in you. When God works, it, it, the evidence is abundantly clear. When God works, we're changed. 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 Absolutely changed. Yeah, there's remaining indwelling sin. There's remaining things that we have to fight with all of our strength. Thank you, John Owen, for helping us in that fight of indwelling sin, but he would deny none of this, right? This is the doctrine he would teach, that there is radical change when God himself comes and abides in you by the Holy Spirit. The Christian faith is not just intellectual assent. It's not just an intellectual worldview, right? Perhaps that's where worldview Um, falls apart and tries to become too important, right? It's about new birth. It's about actual work of God, the triune God, in your sinful heart. It is about God producing worshipers for himself, those who are animated by love to him, those who wake up and pray and say, God, how can I serve you today? You've made me for this. You've chosen me. You've pulled me out of of my sin. I love you. That's what regeneration does. And regeneration is, the moment it happens, there is radical change. Radical. 